0: I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black base To the playhouse of fortune To take the
1: bride When somebody says, you're not going to take Max testimony because he has powerful political connections, and I say, okay, I'm part of it. I took an oath at the SEC to enforce the securities laws without that kind of bias. And my wife said, how are you going to feel about yourself in five years?
0: How often times we go
2: there.
3: You're listening to episode 729 of Unwelcome Guests, The Dynamics of Deep State Capture. I'm Robin Upton, and we just heard from Gary Aguirre, lawyer-turned-SEC whistleblower who thought his job was to investigate financial fraud. Circumstances have led him to believe that perhaps his job was to appear to be investigating while actually covering up financial fraud. His whistleblowing has been successful to the extent that he has been vindicated in a court of law, and the SEC found itself compelled by the facts he presented to carry through at least one investigation into hedge fund malpractice, which they hadn't planned to. I don't think he's been successful in that, Much notice has been taken by the powers that be of what he had to reveal because they were fully party to the facts and, of course, not the slightest bit interested in preventing such nine- or ten-digit frauds. Why would they be? There's a lot of money to be made there. Gary Aguirre's testimony makes up most of this show, an hour and a half in fact, but we're going to start with the soundtrack of a video that i found at deepcapture.com, an interesting site that I need to explore more, which looks at the capture of regulatory agencies, focusing particularly on the SEC, which is what this program is going to be about. Now, the video is fairly rudimentary, but does have some useful information, such as graphs and pictures of people, so, I shall post that at this show's web page on welcomeguests.net slash seven two nine. But the audio track is clear and provides a good introduction on its own, so we're going to listen to that now without further interruption from me. To understand what
4: happened, first we need to go back to March eleventh, two thousand eight, when something very strange occurred on Wall Street. Somebody made what seemed like a ridiculous bet that within the next few days, The share price of Bear Stearns would drop faster and harder than ever in that company's history or the history of nearly any other company of its size. Was Bear Stearns in trouble? Well, like most every other American investment bank, during the housing boom that was ending in those days, Bear had made some bad investments in the subprime mortgage market and, like most every other American investment bank, its balance sheet had suffered as a result. Yet on March 11th, Bear had several billion dollars in cash on hand, meaning there was certainly no risk that the company would be unable to make good on its near-term promises. However, somebody was betting otherwise. In a move many have compared to buying $1.7 million worth of lottery tickets, somebody bought $1.7 million in Bear stearns put options, giving them the right to sell 5.7 million shares of Bear stearns on a future date for $30 apiece. But here's the catch. At the time, Bear was trading at around $65 per share, and that future date was a mere seven trading days away. Those were some unusually long odds. So long, in fact, that those options weren't even considered reasonable and thus not even offered for sale. Whoever bought them had to make a special request, which, at the time, seemed so outlandish, the trade itself sparked news coverage and one expert in the field to save the trade. It's not even on the page of rational behavior, unless you know something know something like what we'll stick around for a few more minutes and I'll tell you what they knew the day after those productions were sold somebody sold some shares of Bear in stock but never delivered the shares to the buyers Now that's not entirely unheard of. After all, accidents do happen, and so the system is set up to temporarily accommodate those so-called delivery failures by crediting the buyer's account with what essentially amount to IOUs intended to take the place of the undelivered chairs until the temporary impediment to their delivery can be resolved. The buyer never knows they've received IOUs in place of actual shares, and that's okay because in the meantime, until they can be replaced, those IOUs are treated like the real thing, in that they can be bought and sold. In other words, the occasional stock delivery failure is a normal part of the marketplace. However, what was happening to Bear Stearns on that day was not at all normal. That's because on that day, over one million shares went undelivered, an unusually high percent of all shares trading. The next day, the number was still up to 750,000 shares of Bear Stearns that people bought but never received. The day after that, the number of undelivered shares rose to 2 million. The next day, nearly 14 million. By the next day, there remained 13 million of these phantom shares coursing through the system. Then 12 million, then 8 million. All told, between the day those options were purchased and the day they came due, somebody caused the supply of Bear Stearns stock to artificially swell by many millions of shares. (music) To understand why this is a problem, we need only refer back to the most basic principle of economics, that is supply and demand. And the fact that when supply goes up and demand remains unchanged, price will always go down. One look at the chart comparing each day's delivery failures with the same day's closing stock price, and we see that as expected. The principle of supply and demand held true in the case of Bear Stearns as well. What made all this possible is a small but lethal loophole in the United States stock settlement system, which, until recently, permitted a manipulative form of stock trading commonly known as naked short selling. Now, before moving ahead, I should make one distinction very clear. Short selling is a beneficial and legal practice, permitting the short seller to profit from declines in a company's share price. Any one of us could do it, if we chose to. Short selling, however, is not the same as buying put options. However, both are means of profiting from declines in a stock's price naked short selling is a name often applied to an illegal steroid-enhanced perversion of short selling and is the most common mechanism by which stock manipulators generate supply-swelling IOUs to sell instead of real shares. Neither you nor I could do this, but until relatively recently, a few powerful folks on Wall Street could and actively did engage in naked short selling in order to manipulate the price of a company's stock down, making their regular short positions and put options much more lucrative. Whoever bought those Bear Stearns put options was almost certainly also responsible for naked shorting the price of Bear Stearns stock from over $60 a share to under $5, such that a $1.7 million long shot turned into a $270 million windfall in a little over one week. That's a return of 8,000%. And at what cost? Well, some things we can quantify and some things we can't. Among the things we most easily can quantify, it cost billions and billions of dollars in shareholder wealth, 29 billion taxpayer dollars used to guarantee the eventual shotgun wedding between Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan, and the jobs of several thousand Bear Stearns employees. But that's barely the beginning, because the criminals, which is what stock manipulators are, managed to get away with it, and the cost of that may never fully be realized because, as everybody knows, when a criminal gets away with their crime, it's certain to happen again, and indeed it did, but not before the United States Senate Banking Committee met in early April of 2008 to figure out exactly what happened to Bear Stearns. The hearing was held days after Bear collapsed, lasted four and a half hours, but could have been boiled down to a pair of questions, both posed to Christopher Cox, who was chairman of the SEC at the time. The first came from Senator John Tester from Montana.
5: Chairman Cox, uh, has anyone brought to your attention, or do you know... Of the possibility of, of short selling that helped bring down Bear Stearns? Uh, uh, I want to be careful uh, in the way that I respond to your question. It is a perfectly appropriate question. It deserves a straight up and factual answer. I'm a little bit constrained because the SEC is in the law enforcement business, and uh, I tried delicately to answer that question before. The SEC very aggressively pursues. Uh, uh, insider trading, market manipulation, uh, and the kinds of illegal naked short selling that have been very publicly alleged in this case. Okay. Um, Thanks. I'll interpret that answer the way I think everybody else in the room interprets
4: it. And the second from Banking Committee Chairman Christopher Dodd of Connecticut. But I was
5: struck.
6: I uh, went back and looked at at, at the the volume of transactions. I guess, Mr. Chairman Cox, I'd like to address this to you if I can. I was looking at the the volume of transactions. This looks like historic volume. I'm looking at the at the amount of uh, transactions that occur daily, weekly, transactions on a daily basis. The numbers run at, at Bear Sturds, up, running up to this, to this week, 2 million, uh, shares. Roughly those numbers. You get into the uh, to the week of March 10th through the 14th. And the volume jumps to 32 million, 54 million, 26 million on on Friday, March 14th, 186 million—a uh, substantial jump in volume. I'm also in, intrigued about the 30-day puts, the $30 puts, excuse me, over 10 days. Um, there seems to have been a, a a rather significant. In fact, someone ran the math on it for me, and if you you made a $600 investment on Thursday in Bear Stearns. <laughs> On Monday that was worth about $37,000. Uh, not a bad deal uh, to make. To what extent is the Fed looking at this? Uh, me, not the Fed, the, the, the SEC. And I, I understand you answered the question earlier. You can't comment on investigations. Let me put it this way too. I guess, Joe. I mean, I would hope <laughs> that you're looking at this. And, and, and to the extent this kind of spike that occurs here would seem to me must have triggered some sort of bells and whistles at the SEC. Uh, here. This goes beyond rumors. Uh, there's there's no there's no violation in law about rumors. There is about collusion. <laughs> and and uh, when I look at a 10-day and 30-day puts, I wonder what's going on here and whether I see this spike. It at least raises bells and whistles in my mind what's going on. And uh, I, I guess I can ask you this did your agency react to this at all? Was there a reaction going on uh, in that week to these activities? Uh,
5: yes, Mr. Chairman. Uh, your hopes uh, will be, uh, I think, uh, met uh, and exceeded with respect to the agency's response to these concerns.
4: Well, there you heard it. The good news is, Cox committed the SEC's enforcement division to actively getting to the bottom of the illegal naked short-selling that was so obviously responsible for crushing Bear Stearns stock price. The bad news is, this is the same SEC enforcement division that spent the better part of a decade actively ignoring plain-as-the-nose-on-your-face evidence of Bernard Madoff's epic scam. The same enforcement division that, according to a United States Senate report, wrongly fired SEC investigator Gary Aguirre when he discovered evidence of insider trading by so many Aguirre's superiors deemed too politically powerful to charge with the crime. The same SEC Enforcement Division that has failed to bring a single action against anybody for naked short-selling. Based on that track record, you can probably guess what happened. Nothing. And with the expected results, the naked short-sellers struck again. This time, the target was Lehman Brothers. The actual attack appears to have been planned to begin at the end of June in 2008, specifically on June 27th. That's the day millions of IOUs generated by naked short selling of Lehman stock began pouring into the market, shearing 40% off the company's stock price in just two weeks. By now even the SEC was beginning to get the message. Manipulative naked shorting was a tool used by criminal short sellers to destroy public companies. And barring something extreme, Lehman, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and others would undoubtedly be next. Perhaps sensing the economic Armageddon on the horizon, On July 15, the SEC announced its intention to temporarily enforce rules meant to curb the already illegal practice of naked short selling, but only in the shares of 19 banks. As the SEC's press release said, today's commission action aims to stop unlawful manipulation through naked short selling that threatens the stability of financial institutions. Immediately, the share prices of Lehman and the other 18 protected companies began to recover as naked short selling of their stock all but ended. But any sense of relief was short-lived as it became obvious to anybody paying attention that the SEC barely even understood what naked short-selling is. At least such was the message transmitted loudly by Chairman Cox in this interview on Fox Business Network.
3: There, I guess you could say, is a
5: growing rumbling that the SEC has not been doing its job in terms of
2: enforcing naked short-sellers and the rumor mill. How do you respond to those comments?
5: Well, it's a very nice opportunity to explain uh, the mistake that your previous guest made and that uh, a lot of the media are making right now in assuming that naked short selling is illegal. Everybody knows they don't like naked short selling. They assume, therefore, it must be illegal and against the rules in all circumstances, but that's not the case. And as a matter of fact, uh, in the financial sector, in these uh, largely uh, capitalized and uh, big float firms, uh... where you can locate shares rather easily uh... the opportunity to extend a fail well beyond three days uh... well beyond weeks uh, indefinitely uh... currently exists we want to make sure that that tool for manipulators and that's what it is uh, is uh... taken away Uh, We are not at all interested in in tamping down on legitimate short selling, but what we are after is this sort of witch's brew of the manufacture of false information and then driving the price of the stock down, not through normal laws of supply and demand, uh, but through the manufacture of shares that don't exist, and that's what naked short selling lets you do.
4: And so the emergency order expired in mid-August, and the SEC gave no sign of any willingness to follow up with another. Five months had passed since the takedown of Bear Stearns and the prevailing attitude on Wall Street was that the SEC's little experiment in rule of law was over. As it happens, the final assault began on September 9th when 1 million Lehman IOUs hit the market. The next day, 6 million. The day after that, 23 million. The day after that, 32 million. The day after that, it was September fifteenth. 28 million. On that day, under the crush of 90 million failed trades dumped into the market in just one week, Lehman's stock dropped to 21 cents and the company declared bankruptcy. Despite being reduced to a penny stock, Lehman shares continued to trade and to be eagerly sold short by those intent on squeezing every last bit of life out of this 158-year-old company. And so, on September 16th, 30 million more phantom shares hit the market. The day after that, the day the assault reached its peak, the day one out of every four shares traded was an IOU, the day shares of Lehman sold for a little over a dime, 50 million more IOUs were dumped into the market. By September 17th, under a deluge of another 42 million phantom shares, Lehman traded for a nickel. By September 18, 2008, Lehman Brothers was gone. That very day, as if to draw special attention to its own unique worthlessness as a regulator, the SEC sprang into action, issuing another emergency order intended to strengthen investor protections against naked short selling, in addition to enacting a new rule that makes clear that those who lie about their intention or ability to deliver securities in time for settlement are violating the law when they fail to deliver. Thank you very much, Dr. Cox, but you're too late. The patient was already dead. In fact, he'd been dead for a few days. And as the Wall Street Journal reported one week later, the global economy died with it. Anonymous will spend decades attempting to add up the true cost of what naked short sellers have done as the SEC stood by and allowed it to happen. So who was actually responsible? Again, thanks to the SEC, short sellers, even naked short sellers, get to operate in utter secrecy, free from any of the disclosure requirements facing regular investors. That's not to say that the SEC couldn't find out who's responsible. That would be easy. But one year after Bear Stearns and seven months after Lehman Brothers were put in their graves, nobody, not one person, has been held accountable. So, who are the most likely suspects? That's easy. Hedge funds. There's a small handful of huge multi-billion dollar short-selling hedge funds with the resources and capacity to make it short on the level seen here. The people behind these hedge funds are among the richest in the world. They live in houses like this in Greenwich, Connecticut, this one in the Hamptons on Long Island, or this one right on Central Park in Manhattan. In fact, this guy, this guy, and this guy literally do live in these houses. In financial circles, they're treated like rock stars, and the New York Financial Press fawns over them in ways that would make a real journalist blush. Take, for example, the way CNBC gushes over short-selling hedge fund manager Jim Chanos, who is also head of the Coalition of Private Investment Companies, the U.S. hedge fund industry's primary Washington, D.C. lobby organ.
0: In a squawk exclusive for two hours, our guest host today, uh, legendary investor and founder of Kinecos Associates, Jim Chanos. He's also chairman of the Coalition of Private Investment Companies, a large hedge fund body. Is Kinecos an island? What's Kinecos? (laughs) Chanos is going to be an island. You could certainly buy one now.
7: The president and founder of Kinecos Associates, and he is with us for the rest of this hour. Jim, we... Today, Hedge fund manager Jim Chanos. Jim, we've been talking about how the short selling ban expired at midnight. Hedge fund manager, short seller Jim Chanos, he's been here talking with us through. We've been
5: saying our honor editor Charlie Gasparino is breaking bread and probably eating steak with one of the most powerful men in the hedge fund industry today. He's at the New York City's Club A Steakhouse with a power lunch exclusive with famed short seller Jim Chanos, the chairman of the coalition of private investment companies and president of Kinecos Associates. It's all yours, Charlie. Take it away. You know, we're having way too much fun here, but we're going to have even more fun. We have one
7: of the titans of the hedge fund industry. Jim Chayness is the famous short seller. The
0: Brookings uh, Institution holding a forum to figure out the role that hedge funds are playing in the economic crisis. It was a stretch, but uh, joining us first on CNBC Hedge Fund, uh, Jim, it says here, it doesn't, you know, I we know what we call it. I call you Mr. Shorty. You don't like that, really. Uh, but we're going to call you a hedge fund. We're going to make it big this time. Hedge fund titan.
4: Boy, that's tough objective journalism, huh? Recently, it was reported that the hedge funds run by this guy, this guy, and this guy came under investigation by the SEC after emails surfaced in which the three of them jointly conspired to do something overtly illegal. No time to give details here. If you want to learn more, check out deepcapture.com, the blog, by the way, that first obtained and published the incriminating emails months ahead of anybody else. But anyway, here's how CNBC reported on that story. (coughs) Yeah, right. And on the record, while it's great to hear that the SEC is attempting to do its job by investigating short-selling hedge funds for anything, I'll eat my hat and formally apologize for almost every bad thing I've said about the SEC if they actually do anything about it. What makes me so certain? Well, simply put, these guys are too rich. They're too powerful. They've got regulators and the financial press too charmed. Too captured might be the better word. And they get what they want far too often. In short, they're emerging as a new American oligarchy. Economist Simon Johnson sees what's happening and recently began sounding the alarm. Here's what he told Bill Moyers.
0: The situation we find ourselves in at this moment, this week, is very strongly reminiscent of the situations we've seen many times in other places. But they're places we don't like to think of ourselves as being similar to. They're emerging markets. It's Russia or Indonesia or a Thailand-type situation or Korea. Um, it, it, that's not comfortable. America is different. America is special. America is rich. And yet we somehow find ourselves in, in the grip of the same sort of crisis and the same sort of oligarchs. It's a small group with a lot of power, a lot of wealth. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily always the names, the household names, that spring to mind in, in, in this kind of context. But they are the people who, who have, uh, who can pull the strings, who have the influence. The signs that I see this week, the body language, the words, the op-eds, the testimony, the way they're treated by certain congressional committees, it makes me feel very, very worried. I had have, have this feeling in my stomach that, that I felt in other countries, much poorer countries, countries that were heading into really difficult economic situations, when there's a small group of people who got you into a disaster, and who are still powerful. The disaster may even have made them more powerful, and, and, and you know you need to come in and, and break that power, and you can't. You're stuck. And that will be
4: the ultimate insult. If the people responsible for getting us into this mess, the very ones who essentially put the flame to the House of Cards, Bear Stearns, and Lehman Brothers had built, if they actually become more powerful as a result of the devastation they've caused? Well, for his part, President Obama seems to get that the SEC is broken beyond repair. And in his February address to Congress, he asked that body to come up with something better.
8: So I ask this Congress to join me in doing whatever proves necessary, because we cannot consign our nation to an open-ended recession. And to ensure that a crisis of this magnitude never happens again, I ask Congress to move quickly on legislation that will finally reform our outdated regulatory system. It is time.
5: It is time.
4: Well, that's great. What's not great is the role hedge funds are jockeying to play in the process because allowing hedge funds, particularly short-selling hedge funds, to help rewrite our system of securities regulation makes as much sense as allowing an arsonist to help rewrite his city's fire code. It's madness. Well, these hedge funds may have captured the SEC, but they'll never capture Congress, and that's where you come in. Go to writerep.house.gov and send a note to your elected representative demanding that when it comes to the process of fixing our system of securities regulation, hedge funds must be relegated to the role they deserve, that of observer. And after you've sent that email, I'm hoping you'll send one more. It turns out Michael Moore is making a new movie exposing Wall Street and the biggest financial swindle in American history. He's looking for those who understand the real deal to tell him what they know. I hope somebody watching this who knows firsthand about the dirty little secret of naked short selling will do the right thing, ignore Wall Street's code of silence, and talk to Michael Moore. You can email him at bailout at michaelmoore.com. As for the rest of you, please forward this video to your friends and send a link to Michael Moore while you're at it. Let's let him know a little more about the real deal. Finally, to learn more about any of the topics discussed on this video, please visit DeepCapture.com.
3: Now, don't let me stop you if you feel like sending an email to those people. I included that, not because I think it would be a worthwhile thing to do, but because we have a long-standing, unwelcome guest's tradition of not editing material any more than is necessary to fit in the time constraints, and we like to broadcast material in its entirety. And it also illustrates a point about people in these captured institutions. It tends to be the experts, the senior people, who get close to the top, whose skills and experience is sufficient to understand just how fundamentally captured that institution is, Now, these are not people who can easily launch another career, and these are not people who tend to have a broad understanding of the machinery of government. So it wouldn't perhaps occur to them, just because they discover the SEC is totally corrupt, that other institutions such as the FBI, CIA, the Justice Department, that they're all actually captured never mind that they're captured by a coordinated small group, a deep state, a cabal, which organises people to be in these senior positions for particular purposes as the need arises, whilst maintaining a general control. Now, to be fair to the author, I think that video was made just a year after the Bear Stearns' takedown, when one might perhaps have realistically expected An investigation, at least perhaps not a prosecution. From a 2015 perspective, these massive bailouts, this is looking like fairly small beans, a few hundred million dollars here or there. And we see how effectively the deep state have attempted to kick over the traces. So I shall read you the paragraph. There's not a lot on this assertion about naked short selling in Wikipedia. There were reports at the time before its deep state importance was recognised. What Wikipedia has to say is an article by journalist Matt Taibbi for Rolling Stone contended that naked short-selling had a role in the demise of both Bearstones and Lehman Brothers. A study by finance researchers at the University of Oklahoma Price College of Business studied trading in financial stocks, including Bearstones and Lehman Brothers, and found, quote, no evidence that stock price declines were caused by naked short selling, unquote. Now, for a slight change of pace, we have an extract from an SEC exchange media remix. I'm not sure who actually made this or when, but the topic of SEC capture and controlled media capture is fairly timeless.
7: Some of the bigger stars were cheerleaders, not analysts. And it didn't. It was no longer about who was doing the best analysis, because the best analysis got you nowhere. It was who was
8: being the best cheerleader for those companies. And that's
7: problematic. That's
8: troublesome. We don't trust the corporate media, and neither should you.
9: On the trade floor stands a broker who's a master at the trade, and he's with the biggest brokerage that trades 10 million shares a day in crude oil or in forests. Or switch-up factories And he can make you rich as Midas If you just can get a piece bye 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 Let the others work for you bye 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 Just watch the numbers on the screen as they go high And in
7: today's stock pick segment, internet analyst Scott Ahrens from Bear Stearns
8: Positive recommendations could have a dramatic effect When Bear Stearns took software company Digital River public the bank's Internet analyst, Scott Ahrens, issued a buy, and the stock rose 500% over the next three months. Later, he reiterated his buy on CNN.
0: And I like Digital River because I think it's
4: an undiscovered e-commerce name.
8: Many who lost money in the markets now believe that analysts like Aaron's should have revealed that his bank, Bear Stearns, had taken Digital River public and had an interest in keeping the stock pumped up.
4: It's relatively un- undiscovered, and has a great management team, and I expect it to be a big success. Come on, gentlemen, we got banking in the deal. And
8: now
9: he's moving capital all around the world, and he's trading things you never would imagine. And you can't believe our bodies sold like water, and like clean air, and like molecules and genes, till our very lives are traded, and our Earth is desecrated. And it all goes just to fund a rich man's schemes. Lies, lies, lies. They said capital would free us. Lies, lies, lies. While the brokers take their cut, the planet dies. Lies, 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 lies,
8: Analysts rarely ever issued sells. Aaron's bank, Bear Stearns, has issued sells in less than 1% of its recommendations.
0: Why do you never use a sell recommendation? I I wouldn't say that. I mean, I don't think it's true to say that people never use
4: a sell recommendation. Well,
5: why do they rarely ever use a sell recommendation?
4: Because I guess they rarely thought that
0: you should be selling the stock. They thought that maybe it was a longer-term hold. Did it have to do with... A feeling that a cell recommendation would possibly do too much damage to the company? Party Town. We don't whore out our staff because... Was that a factor?
5: Can you be more specific? Well, we don't have one.
0: You couldn't issue a cell. I mean, Bear Stearns just wouldn't allow you. Oh, sure they would. People issued cells. I mean, have you you looked at... But you said the neutral was the lowest that you gave, so... That I gave. That was the lowest that I gave. So why wouldn't you issue a cell? I didn't put too much thought into it.
9: Now he's running all around the floor And sweating in his fear And he screams into a cell phone That employment's up, that can't be good The labor market's too tight And if wages start to rise That will bring inflation And in the end of speculation Sell, sell, sell Keep the workforce lean and mean Sell, sell, sell Blame the hard times on the unions and the
7: greens We'll continue our coverage of the violent protests in Quebec City at the Summit of the Americas in just a moment. But first, let's bring you up to speed on what happened on Wall Street today. It was a disappointing end to what was otherwise a very stellar week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Moneyline. Violent protests have erupted on the streets of Quebec City as the Summit of the Americas gets set to begin. And will those protests again be violent, in your estimation? First of all, I believe that tomorrow's protests will be entirely non-violent. There you see pictures from this afternoon of violent protests. Violent protesters take to the streets in Quebec City as President Bush gets ready to begin his first big international meeting. This is Moneyline. You have to say, if free trade is so popular, how come they're having to put up a fence like that to try to keep the people out? Myron Kandel joins me now with a look at events north of the border that marred a good week for the economy here in the U.S. Myron?
5: Well, Terry, it was a very good week on Wall Street, but a bad day in Canada. You know, this was not a popular protest, but a group of professional agitators, many of them acting as hoodlums. Time Warner AOL, such as The problem for the public
8: is
6: that they don't understand how analysts get paid. And so they, act, they, they think that the analyst is sort of on their side, kind of working for them. Or at least that's what they used to think when things were good and stocks were going up. But in fact, you know, analysts get paid on the basis of how many deals they can bring to their firm and how tightly integrated they are with the underwriting process, which has nothing to do with helping small investors and everything to do with, with bringing IPOs public which makes a huge amount for the firm and which makes a huge amount for the the sort of investing professional insiders who get these deals.
9: In many respects, a culture of gamesmanship has taken root in the financial community, making it difficult to tell salesmanship from honest advice.
8: Chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Arthur Levitt made stock analysts and television a major focus of his public statements.
9: A lot of analysts that we see on television recommending stocks work for firms that have business relationships with the same companies that the analysts cover. And some of these analysts' paychecks are typically tied to the performance of their employers. One can only imagine how unpopular an analyst would be who downgrades his firm's best
8: client. At one point, Levitt sent an SEC staffer to talk to the producers of the major money shows about the issue of analyst recommendations. Toto, we're
9: not on Wall Street anymore.
8: The networks in general felt that they had no responsibility in terms of monitoring the guests that appeared on their programs. And my feeling was that the analysts who came on those shows and promoted certain stocks that that represented companies uh, involving investment banking clients for their employers had a responsibility to clearly reveal that on camera I still feel that way I still feel that the kind of disclosure we're getting from analysts in both print and electronic media uh, is incomplete and inadequate. corporate greed, With the news you need. In spite of hand wringing and concern from regulators, this is Line. The, voting... the markets continued on their way to record heights. First,
7: more on our top story, NASDAQ 5000, America's favorite stock index closed above 5K for the first time today.
0: after The euphoria, where it started and who started it, exactly what is a debatable point. But once the circle started spinning, everybody fed it. You know, the public market investors did, the venture capitalists did, the bankers did, the companies that are involved in it did. Uh, everybody got caught up into the the feeding frenzy. I was a part of it. I'm sure if you were a purchaser of stock in that environment, you were caught up into it. Who's making
7: money? Brian Naismith, CEO of Cashflow. Shares of the network equipment maker shot up nearly $14 after Credit Suisse First Boston raised its price target and repeated a buy rating on the stock. That put its one-day gain on paper at more than $29 million.
5: The kind of valuations that were going on and the... Kind of trading that was happening in public markets, it really is—it's really fueled by what you would call the greater fool theory. In other words, there has to be a greater fool than you that buys it, or the whole thing collapsed.
3: And now for the main piece this week, the Burgess lecture. This is from January 2014, and the title is "Whistleblowing When the Government Doesn't Like the Tune." I shall link in to the YouTube video. From whence I took this soundtrack, I've edited it slightly to remove hesitations and to fit in the time available. The testimony is very congruent with other things we've heard about how the government has been treating whistleblowers, and really shows a lie to a lot of the hypocritical announcements made by the incoming or outgoing heads of these various regulatory agencies all of which seem to be controlled for serious operational matters by the deep state.
2: Gary Aguirre has become very well known uh, as an attorney who, while heading an insider trading investigation, resisted his supervisor's demands to give preferential treatment to a Wall Street banker. Fired for so-called insubordination, Mr. Aguirre would prove to the satisfaction of two Senate committees, a federal court, and three federal agencies that the SEC had, in fact, acted unlawfully. These events became the focus of three Senate hearings and a 108-page report by the Senate Finance and Judiciary Committees. The evolving story has been told in a dozen books, national and international television, and hundreds of news articles, including the front page of the New York Times. After a very successful 27-year career as a trial lawyer in California, Mr. Aguirre left the law in 1995 to pursue other personal interests. Inspired by the lawyers in Bush v. Gore, Mr. Aguirre returned to law school in 2001 to retool for a new law career, this time in public service. He graduated with distinction from Georgetown Law Center in October of 2003 with an LLM combining securities regulation and international law. His thesis won second prize in a national competition sponsored by the SEC Alumni Association for the best paper on securities law. After joining the SEC in 2004, Mr. Aguirre soon headed an insider trading investigation of Pequot Capital Management, formerly the world's largest hedge fund. After his firing, he sued the SEC under FOIA to get access to the Pequot investigative files and won. Forbes discussed what happened next, and I quote, after a scathing 2007 report by the Senate criticized the SEC's handling of Aguirre's Pequot investigation, and after Aguirre dredged up the smoking gun emails and passed them along to the Senate, the FBI and the SEC in late 2008, the SEC reopened the case in January 2009. Pequot closed its doors a few months later. In May 2010, Pequot and its CEO settled with the SEC for $28 million. Now in private practice, Mr. Guerry represents whistleblowers and victims of securities fraud and market abuse. Before I turn the podium over to Gary this evening, I wanted to add a personal note about why he was invited and why I think his message is so important. I was reminded about uh, the first ethics class I ever took in law school, and the dean at the time, uh, Dave Link, was teaching the class. One of the first questions that one of my classmates asked him was, how can you possibly represent someone who's guilty? And Dean Link sort of put his foot up on the desk as he had a tendency to do, and he smiled and he said, look, let me tell you something. No client ever walks into your office and says, hi, I'm Joe, and I did it. Will you represent me? I think we need to remember that our colleagues and supervisors don't walk into our offices similarly and say, hi, I'm thinking about committing an ethical breach, like to join me? This point was driven home for me when I watched Gary's testimony before a Senate subcommittee on C-SPAN over the summer, as well as that of his coworkers and superiors. It dawned on me that often doing the right thing, which is to say the ethical thing, is often a murky lonely and unappreciated business not because everyone around you is committed to doing the wrong thing but because they're telling themselves and everyone else who will listen that they're the ones who are doing the right thing it takes a lot of courage to stand up to that kind of pressure Gary has displayed that kind of courage and that is one reason why I'm so pleased to have him as our guest tonight please join me in welcoming Gary Aguirre
1: Thank you so much, Professor Hollister, for the kind introduction. I'd like to begin by making my talk a little interactive. I noticed in reading the website of the business school that 91% of you can expect to look forward to jobs once you graduate. At least that's the statistic I saw from last year. I would like to see a show of hands of all of those folks that are here that plan on being a whistleblower when you take that first job. (laughs) Certainly there must be someone in the crowd that plans on becoming a whistleblower. You know, that's the point. No one plans on becoming a whistleblower. It's a choice you make when you're faced with options. I'm gonna show, this is Frank Cerbico. You might think of him as Al Pacino in the movie Cerbico. Uh, His uh, whistleblowing was about corruption in the New York City Police Department. He was sold out by his fellow officers and shot in the face. This is Daniel Ellsberg, another whistleblower. A brilliant man, Harvard PhD in economics, developed a theory in economics, which is still, I understand, uh, uh, a applicable theory used by economists. He wrote the Pentagon Papers, and at some point in writing the Pentagon Papers, he began to realize that we were in a wrong war. That our leadership was lying to the public about the war. He knew all about it. He went to some anti-war uh, conferences and at one of them was deeply touched by a young man who was getting ready to go to prison because of his position in the war. Ellsberg went to found a bathroom and cried for an hour, and then changed his position. He went public. He made an ethical decision. This is Deep Throat, Mark Felt. He was probably the smartest whistleblower of all because he managed to keep his identity confidential for decades. These are the different persona of uh, Bradley or Chelsea Manning, who uh, disclosed thousands of military records, including a video of US soldiers shooting Iraqi civilians and joking about it. He's paying a big price. And of course, there's Edward Snowden. Now, my point in showing you these photos is I would bet that if any of them were sitting out there in the audience and heard my question, did you ever plan on becoming a whistleblower, their hands would not have gone up either. This is a picture of me 20, when I was uh, 28 years ago. I've thrown it in just to prove that at one time in my life, I was young. <laughs> I was a public defender, which means I was in, in California in a remote community called Fresno, defending people, uh, indigents who were charged with crime. You can't get any further from Washington. I stayed a trial. I stayed a lawyer uh, until about 1995. I became very successful as a trial lawyer in California. I won big verdicts, big trials, and consecutively won cases. Around 1995, I'd had enough of the law. Class actions were becoming ugly. There was, uh, I, I would say a lot of lawyering going on that I was watching that was uh, for causes that were nothing more than deepening the pocket of the trial lawyers. I left law, spent five years in Spain. Now I mention this background because I'm going to talk about myself as a whistleblower and I think it's important to know a little bit about why I became a whistleblower and At this point in my life, when I became a whistleblower, I was financially comfortable. I was accomplished in my profession. I was retired. I was having a great time living in Spain. And I decided to do something new. I decided to do something in public service. A lot of people do public service their whole lives. College professors, judges, And I had decided that what I had done as a trial lawyer for several decades was something that I needed to to take another look at. I got fascinated by this case, Bush v. Gore, as it wound its way through the Florida Supreme Court and then on to the United States Supreme Court. And I noted that it was really a battle between these two lawyers, David Boyce and Ted Olson. Ted Olson was a... Uh, the blonde-haired gentleman who was a year ahead of me at Berkeley, these two, these two men litigating as lawyers through the courts were in a position where their case would decide who the president of the United States would be. So at this point, I, 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 became, I began reading the cases. I began re- almost as if I was one of the lawyers representing them. And eventually, my wife said, you know, I don't think you got lawyering out of your system. So I decided to go back. I went to Georgetown, and when I got to Georgetown, I thought I would be going into human rights, but at the point that I got there, Enron was breaking. Uh, My generation was being punished because retirements were being destroyed. Uh, Life savings were being lost by companies like Enron, WorldCom, and so I chose securities. And I began studying this man, Ferdinand Pecora. Pecora was an amazing fellow. He would have come over on the boat about the same time as uh, Vito Corleone, the mythical godfather. He actually did come over on a boat and uh, somehow managed to become an incredible lawyer. He lived in a basement with five members of his family. He went to divinity school. His father got ill. He dropped out of divinity school. Went to work in a factory. While working in the factory, worked part-time in a law office, became a lawyer, became an extraordinarily successful lawyer in New York. And after the Wall Street crash of 1929, they looked around for someone to conduct an investigation of Wall Street, and they chose this guy. He brought in all of the heads of the Wall Street banks and put them under oath basically said, how did you make your money? And he revealed over months of cross-examination that was followed tightly by the public that Wall Street banks and the head of those Wall Street banks had delivered the 1929 crash and the Great Depression that followed. I studied everything about Ferdinand Pecora while I was at Georgetown. I went to the National Archives I reviewed page by page the Senate uh, investigation that he conducted. I read the transcripts cover to cover. This is a, uh, one of the documents I pulled out of the Pecora files. It's from um, January 27, 1933. It was about a couple of weeks after Roosevelt had become president. These were the findings that were being given to PCORA as the as a focus of his investigation. These were the things that were wrong and they went through all of the market manipulations and, and different types of fraud that were being perpetrated by Wall Street at the time. Here's, here's what, what I considered the bottom-line conclusion from Pecora. As its memory of the unhappy market collapse of 1929 becomes blurred, the public may lend at least one ear to the per- persuasive voices of the street subtly pleading for a return to the good old times. So what came of his investigation was control of Wall Street, some regulation controlling Wall Street, the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and this was supposed to keep a cap on Wall Street. And what he was saying is, these guys are going to try to get the cap taken off, and when it does, we're going to have the same same experience all over again. I wrote a paper about uh, the evolution of the securities laws beginning with the 33 and 34 statutes. And I wrote, PCOR got it right with one caveat. The Supreme Court, not the public, would warm to the message that the anti-fraud provisions were throttling the country's prosperity. Basically what I was saying is, PCOR was right. He said that the cap would come off, the public would let it off sometime, and that when it did, we would have another market-style collapse. What I was saying is that the Supreme Court, through a series of decisions that began in 1974, was progressively taking the cap off of Wall Street, and that's why we got Enron. My paper won a prize that year, awarded by the SEC, and this, this award kind of opened the doors for me to get into the SEC, and that's where I wanted to go, because the SEC, according to Pecora, was the cop on the corner of Wall Street that was supposed to keep the cap on Wall Street so we didn't get an encore of 1929. The first case I got when I got to the SEC was to investigate a hedge fund run, run by this man, Arthur Sandberg. He ran a, a, a hedge fund called Pequot Capital Management, which was the largest hedge fund in the world in 2001. I was handed this case... And my first reaction was, are there other cases like this against this guy and his hedge fund? I began looking around the SEC to see if I could find some other cases, very much like I would have done as a 28-year-old public defender to ask, are there any priors against my client? But there were no records. Nobody at the SEC kept any records whether a hedge fund was committing repetitive violations of the Securities Acts. They didn't exist. Mr. Sandberg was a perennial member of the uh, Barons Roundtable, highly respected, went to MIT engineering, later to Stanford for a master's degree, and later a master's degree from uh, Columbia Business School. Year in, year out, Mr. Sandberg would gain profits of 27%, according to Forbes, like clockwork. Some of his hedge funds over a six- or seven-year period had 100% returns. Extraordinary, extremely intelligent, resourceful, but nobody questioned whether something else was going on. I found thirteen cases in the first month at the SEC. What I what the case I was hand, handed was a referral from the uh, NASD. Just like the New, New York Securities uh, New York Stock Exchange, these entities would track manipulations in the market or insider trading. And when they found something suspicious, they would send it to the SEC. Uh, And the SEC didn't get track of them, keep track of them. But I hunted around, and I found 14 of these cases. And then I went to visit the uh, New York Stock Exchange to ask them about one of the cases. And they said, look, this hedge fund is perennially being referred to, uh, is perennially coming up on our radar for insider trading. We're constantly sending referrals to the Securities and Exchange Commission. They're way too lucky. And there's two other companies that are just as lucky as them. And we send these referrals over and nothing happens. Then I uh, was lucky enough to have, uh, this was about the, my first, first month at the SEC, there was a lecture given by uh, a, an attorney who had been there for about 30 years, who was the internal SEC guru on insider trading. And after his lecture, I went and showed him the cases that I had found on this hedge fund. And he told me, I, this is what he said, I tried to get these guys 10 years ago. They're very slick. I consider them uh, perennial insider traders. But with 14 cases, we may have a chance to get them. Now. Let me tell you, just give you an idea of, of the kind of luck that this hedge fund had. Art Sandberg, who was the CEO of the hedge fund, woke up one morning, July 2nd, and over the next 30 days bought more Heller Financial stock than anyone in the world. Now, this graph I'm showing you, if you look at the black columns, that's the stock he bought that was more stock in a company than anybody else in the world bought for 30 days the green is how much he tried to buy okay sometimes 250% of the total amount of the stock that was traded i took his examination and said why 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 did you why were you why did you wake up that morning and suddenly start buying heller financial out of nowhere we can't find any records there was no research. You usually contact the company. You never contacted the company. There's nothing. There's no emails. There's nothing. There's absolutely not a single record. And he told me, well, you know, and he popped off six reasons that he bought the stock. I subpoenaed some records from him, and it turned out that his lawyers had given him an analyst's report a few days before he testified, and all six reasons were in the analyst's report, and I walked him through it. And he identified that every reason he would given me during his first examination was on the report. He had no reasons. Heller Financial was purchased at the end of the 30 days by General Electric, and its stock went up 50% overnight, and he made $18 million like that. Now, we, we couldn't find any cause for him to make those purchases, except the night before he began purchasing, he had a phone call with this gentleman. John Mack. John Mack had just become the CEO of Credit Suisse, and he just returned from three days meeting with Credit Suisse hierarchy in Zurich. And it so happens that Credit Suisse was representing Heller Financial, the company that was acquired. So it didn't take much in the way of brilliant analysis to conclude, we have to take this guy's testimony. I'd been through millions of emails.